Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today we are talking again about the Ukraine war, and specifically how it is viewed from Africa. I'm pleased to have Dr. Hassan Kanenji with us. Dr. Kanenji is director of the Horn International Institute for Strategic Studies in Nairobi. We'll be speaking about how African countries are strategically aligning themselves in this new context, and what Ukraine and the West gets wrong about African states' responses to the war. Dr. Kanenje voices a perspective that is widespread on the continent, but which is often misunderstood or unheard. So we thought this episode was especially important precisely because of how jarring it may be for some listeners to hear. Dr. Kanenje, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me. So I want you, first of all, to help take us inside the debate that's going on among African policymakers and within African policymaking circles about how states on the continent should be responding to the war in Ukraine. Obviously, Africa sort of end up in some ways as a swing vote, if you will, in, in, in this global divide, which is, you know, sort of been well covered at this point. But what have been the debates? Has there been any dis- discernible shift towards more of a unified consensus and on what position to take towards the war since, since it started? The current crisis, the way it has manifested, especially on the African continent, there hasn't been any movement towards consensus, in part because, uh, number one, the conflict in Ukraine is not exactly seen as a priority for most African countries. Uh, secondly, it is also viewed largely as uh, un- unresolved business from the Cold War era, and that therefore a number of African countries you know, are best served to stay, of course, out of it. But also fundamentally, Uh, African countries have relations both with uh, Russia and, of course, with the West. But fundamentally, uh, Russia's ally, which is China. And so they're also very careful uh, in the kind of policy they want to project out there, lest they perhaps offend uh, some of the potential allies, especially considering the level of investment that the Chinese are making, who are very closely allied to Russians at the same time. Mm. So obviously, from a Western perspective, this uh, looked like wholly a side of uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine. I'm wondering, you know, if that is how it is viewed in the in the global south. And then follow up one, because I think this one doesn't get a lot of self-reflection in the West. How is NATO viewed as part of this? You alluded to this in your in your comment to the Cold War. But if you could be more specific, you know, part of what has informed, I think, the general state of ambivalence by African countries is the perception within the continent of Western hypocrisy, especially when it comes to increasing lateralism uh, in the post-Cold War period. And one thing the way NATO is remembered, especially in recent years, is actually not exactly favorable, uh, in part because of the actions were undertaken in Libya, which has led to, I think, a series of events that has destabilized not just the Sahel and North Africa, but also West African countries with increased terror activities, fragilities in states and stuff like that. And so it is an outfit that is viewed as a tool for collective defense by the West, but not a tool that has actually played a particularly positive role on the continent. And so it's not exactly something that many Africans are excited either to support or oppose outside, of course, uh, viewing it as uh, you know, a tool for collective self-defense by Western countries and not really Africa. Now, you say, of course, that there is a lot of ambivalence. But the effects of the war are being felt quite a bit in Africa, are they not? Oh, the effects of war uh, in the Ukraine on Africa are actually probably greater than in other parts of the world, in part because, uh, you know, food security is massive and Africa don't have a lot of alternatives. 
and increasingly many African countries relied on the you, you know special on wheat of uh, coming from Ukraine and parts of Russia but also because those regions are a big sources of steel and other construction materials real estate is being hit hard not to mention a destruction by the war caused by the war has led to shifting of focus from other priorities especially with regard to Africa's development but also when it comes to fighting terror uh, trying to support development uh, you know efforts trying to build uh, democratic institutions and so that is suffering in fact uh, one of the area that you know has become very apparent is that the focus has also removed attention from uh, very fragile parts or you know conflict prone parts such as the horn of africa for instance uh, the crisis in ethiopia political stalemate in in somalia in in sudan as well as in west africa that are increasingly you know suffering from a crisis of governance and democracy and so the threat that africans also see is that attention is going to be shifted away from some of these important issues and important areas of concern on the continent that is actually contributing to increased ambivalence on the continent and lack of desire to join the sanctions regime as most western countries actually would have preferred in africa to do so there's a number of things i think uh, going on here which often get sort of uh, lumped together at least i'd say in the in the Western press, I think it's useful to break some of these down. Um, and you've alluded to many of these. I mean, first, I'd say that there are countries who have almost, if you want to say, tactical or, or national interests involved in as much as direct relations with Russia that they're trying to protect. That might be the most covered angle, but is the least interesting. And then you have what, what you were talking about also, which is the need to strategically position African states, I think, within this new geopolitical arena in which great power competition is coming back. And then third, I think there is at times sort of ideological parts of this as well, including, you know, some some anti-Western sentiment. So skipping the sort of national interest side in terms of relations with, with Russia, I want to talk a bit more about the strategy you mentioned, the sort of strategic implications. At its core, what do you see as the strategic imperative of Africa when it does come to this new world in which it's West versus Russia, West versus Russia and China? I mean, besides just the specific war in Ukraine, what are the interests um, African states need to protect uh, within this world? You know, Africans uh, would like to have relations with both the East and the West to, you know, if you have to simplify it that way, much more so because they role of China has been increasing in recent you know, years on the continent. But, but while at the same time, the West uh, is a traditional you know, ally to the continent, but its role and relevance with regard to Africa's development and future has you know, been decreasing. And the sentiment, some of which is informed by some of the colonial contestations and contradictions, for especially in West Africa against the French, a lot of African countries think they should at best, perhaps be neutral, and at worst, remain ambivalent, in part because I think there is a sense for much of the last 30 years, as pretty much the West, you know, withdrew from the continent, uh, there is a sense of abandonment, and the sense that perhaps the West may not be relied on the way it used to be before. Now, that is also leading to countries actually having less faith in democracy, which, of course, again, poses a lot of uh, threat when it comes to Africa's future and potential to be democratic countries that, that are open. Because the more they've looked east, the less democratic they've tended to be. The, le- the more authoritarian regimes are, you know, they, they, they tend to become. And the more uh, normalization 
of coups and authoritarianism is actually you know happening across the continent and so the the strategic i think value calculation by the continent is uh, that there isn't anything to lose by staying ambivalent or staying neutral because then we do not have to make enemies with either side and in as far or in so far as recent africa's you know uh, response is concerned i think uh, you have seen that degree of you know for lack of a better word non aligned or non alignment you know take root some countries have come up openly to act in support for instance of russia both for sentimental as well as for romantic or rom- romanticism values of course of the soviet union and the role they played on the continent but generally it is strategically important for the continent uh, i think in calculations of many policy makers not to be seen at least publicly to be taking a stand either against or for one country or the other in in the current uh, contestation that is going on which again as i mentioned is viewed from the lens of the cold war and then how much of the response do you think can be chalked up to either pro russian or anti western if you will uh, sentiments i think the sentiment is less about being pro russia but more about being the recent unilateralist movements especially by the you know western countries and north america which a lot of african countries actually have resented moscow doesn't have a lot of engagement with the continent neither can they provide economic goodies or the kind of democratic assistance you know that african countries actually need to be able to get from where they are today but because of a sense of not being listened to a sense of uh, of paternalism at least the way from the point of africans it's a resentment more much of a resentment by the western consensus as opposed to really being pro moscow per se because a number of these countries have zero relations with moscow i think the west sometimes <laughs> forgets that it's uh, spent decades now as the predominant force in geopolitics and uh, there's a lot of resentment built up after all that time one of the talking points you hear from the west in this is that you know africans should be allies in sort of this post imperial protecting state sovereignty um protecting the rules of the multilateral order uh, and therefore should you know be condemning the invasion of ukraine we've talked about this already but but specifically what does sort of this framing miss what do you think the west misunderstands about the global south's ambivalent reaction uh, one thing uh, which i think the you know washington and well gets right is uh, yeah it is true african countries should condemn uh especially in terms of violation of territorial integrity and sovereignty of countries this was demonstrated by kenya's ambassador to the united nations and i think he made a very clear statement with regard to that because smaller powers generally they cannot be protected by international law and if big countries are not obeying that observing that then of course countries in the global south has much more to lose than countries in the global north uh there is no equivalent of nato for instance for the global south and so no one is actually going to save them however i think what is also lost is even in that statement one thing that was alluded to was unilateralism and unilateralism has been exercised a lot more by the west according at least in the perception of africans uh going back to the 2003 invasion of iraq you know and so many other actions have been taken since then uh than moscow which to the minds of both african scholars and opinion makers the current conflicts also contributed by increased western expansion towards russia's borders 
Now, of course, the merits or demerits of that can be debated, but that perception is alive and real. And it's also aided then by some of the actions that have been undertaken on the continent itself, and especially the recent history uh, that involved the 2011 overthrow of uh, Colonel Gaddafi, who, even in his dictatorship on authoritarianism, was actually largely popular on the African continent. And so that is something I think the West finds hard to grapple with. And so, number two, there is a perception of double standards when it comes to human rights, when it comes to what conflict is worth intervening in. There are lots more people, for instance, uh, you know, dying on the continent and they're dying in Ukraine, even today, in different theaters of war. But of course, that is something that's not spoken. And so, to the extent that the West had to mobilize virtually every resource to ensure that, uh, you know, Russia does not commit more crimes in Ukraine, I think it's something that a lot of Africans found appalling. And that is, a, that is part of the reason why the only serious statement that the African Union has actually released was on treatment of Africans in Ukraine, as opposed to actually, as an African Union, opposing the unilateral and provoked invasion of Ukraine, in part because of this perception that the West has been doing the same thing, then why should we be able to actually stand up to defend them? I think this sort of escalation, uh, if you will, by the West and, and NATO in terms of supporting Ukraine, it's often framed in the Western media, I think, specifically in terms of the risk that it would lead to direct conflict um, you know, between NATO and Russia or nuclear war. But I think the fallout, perhaps, that it's had in the perceptions of the war in the rest of the world is is less appreciated. Would you say that this sort of cycle of escalation has significantly sort of changed where the sympathies lie or how the war is viewed? One unfortunate thing that may come out of this is there is going to be reduced faith, especially in the stability that has existed with regard to the working relation between the global south and the global north. Uh, the level of sanctions that have been used, especially the degree to which they've been posed on Russia. While a lot of them are warranted, of course, some of them have sent shivers down the spine of many countries that perhaps the West may decide to do the same thing with them once they fall out. And so uh, there's a lot of discussion in the global south of actually diversifying the foreign reserves away from the dollar, as well as trying to diversify the sources of investment and perhaps push this country's father into the orbit of, for instance, you know, Beijing, which, of course, is not exactly this kind of system that once, you know, shares this, the same values, even with the global south in terms of democratic institutions of free media or civil liberties. And so I think uh, as analysts from the global south, that is the danger we are foreseeing, you know, in the years to come. Yeah, so I, I think you raise a, a very important point there about the sanctions. And you, you mentioned even that global South countries would be afraid the West would use the same tools against them. But of course, uh, the US especially has been using these tools for quite a while and has been using the fact that the US dollar is the a de facto reserve currency of the world to use sanctions as a tool. And it's, as you know, an increasingly popular tool um, by the West, um, including in, in African states. So I think I think this point is, is worth dwelling on a bit more, how, how has that reliance on sanctions towards uh, countries in the global south, but Africa and specifically, how, how has that been viewed by African states? That's something viewed extremely negatively. Extremely negatively because uh, this, the use of sanctions tend to be selective against especially governments that the West doesn't like. Not exactly governments that are actually performing very poorly. 
And because a lot of African countries, for instance, point to literally monarchies and dictatorships in the Middle East that are being entertained by the West, while at the same time, uh, obviously, some of them which are pariah countries, you know, even like Eritrea, uh, but they think they are not as perhaps autocratic as Saudi Arabia. And so this double standards has actually led to the reduced influence, for instance, of Washington in the Horn of Africa. I think recently you saw Beijing uh, post uh, a new envoy for the region uh, who was really, you know, happily and welcome to the region. And that is significant uh, because of the perception of, uh, of unfairness by the sanctions regime, especially as it is deployed, you know, by the West. Uh, it's normally the first tool that, you know, they're going to, to deploy or to use. Now, that, uh, it is something that has made a lot of African countries worried that perhaps over-reliance on a system that, of course, has kept us going for much of the last, uh, you know, century may not exactly be something you want to stay with, especially if your economy can be destroyed, you know, with one stroke of a pen. And you can see discussions and debates in academic circles, in symposia, uh, you know, by the elites of countries in the global south, that maybe it's about time to go beyond, uh, you know, the just the road and belt initiative by the Chinese and perhaps start considering whether we can diversify our currencies and start, in fact, trading in those currencies. And this has been exacerbated by, I think, the recent move by Putin uh, to re require that uh, Europeans deal with, uh, with him using rubles. And that has allowed the ruble to actually, you know, get stronger even than, you know, the pre-war, you know, time. And so this sending a message out there that there is a chance that there can be an alternative uh, to this kind of chaos, to which we do not have control over. And as I mentioned, uh, it is pushing the global south and especially Africa in actually a place that is going to be less promising, uh, that is going in terms of democracy and openness, uh, is going to be less promising in terms of creating an international order that is actually transparent and free. Just a quick follow up on that. The conversation that often takes place, um, as you know, in, in Western, but sometimes African policy circles, too, is, of course, that sanctions is, it feels like, uh, for some, one of the only uh, policy tools that can be there when trying to apply pressure, perhaps to end a war or to reverse a coup. What, what would be the argument against that, I guess? What is the argument against using sanctions in that way, even if it's for ostensibly good purposes? Because sanctions by themselves have never demonstrated ability to work. The Treaty of Versailles imposed extremely punitive sanctions against Germany, and 20 years later you saw what the result was. Saddam Hussein's sanctions did not get rid of him, it was a war that got rid of him. So sanctions by themselves, those are sticks. A lot of times they have to be followed by carrots, and then a process can actually allow for transformation. That is something has always been lacking in the sanctions regime. Using, for instance, the example recently of Ethiopia, uh, when sanctions were imposed on them, there was no robust process that was followed to make the leadership to change course in what they were, was happening in Tigray, uh, the kind of human rights violations, and force the parties to actually come to a negotiating table. And so this is seen generally as punitive especially towards weaker and poor uh, developing countries or leaderships of these countries. And so by themselves, the utility of them is questionable and there is certainly no evidence that they've ever worked, whether on the African continent or outside. And so because it has led to a lot more suffering, whether it's in Eritrea 
or in Sudan or in other African countries on the continent, you know, it has led to a lot of misery. And this misery is in part actually contributing to the kind of refugee crisis that we are seeing, Africans moving across to Europe, but also the kind of instability in these countries, you know, and terrorism, because that's a fertile ground generally for terrorist recruitment. And for, for those, for instance, from the Horn of Africa, this is something that is very clear, that uh, uh, the sanctions that has pushed countries into uh, poverty has contributed you know, ex extensively to the kind of terror problem that we, ha we now have stretching all the way from the Sahel to Cabo Delgado on the continent. Mm. Oh, those are all very good points. Something that we see a lot is that people don't always even believe that sanctions will work, but they're sometimes used almost in the absence of a strategy. I'm going to pivot slightly. I'm just wondering, we've heard for a long time, of course, complaints. This has been true for many decades from, I'd say, um, African states about how the, the West sort of views their role in the world order. Um, I think oftentimes at the UN, for instance, African states come up in the agenda as as sort of subjects, the, the people who they are debating the policy about rather than the actors themselves. Do African states feel like the West still views them almost as uh, sidekicks, almost, if you will, in the in the world order? Do they feel like the world is changing fast enough to accommodate African states? There's a sense of the continent uh, that um, the West has adopted some in degree of sanctimonious self-righteousness, especially when it comes to uh, how the world you know, should run. And African countries see themselves as dispensable goods uh, that can be used when they're needed and they can be dumped when they're no longer in need uh, of those goods. And this has created a sense of um, not just complacency with regard to let's say, even, you know, being able to react to important events in international, international relations. But I, I just uh, a sense of, ho of hopelessness uh, with regard to Africa's role in the world, in part because uh, they believe their word doesn't matter. And I've heard a lot of this, especially from uh, the architects uh, or the leadership of the African Union at the time of the Libyan war, when they were trying to make efforts to have... Uh, uh, the, the Libyan strongmen uh, make concessions. And uh, on their way to Libya, to, to Tripoli, they were actually asked to turn around because NATO missiles were already you know, you know, landing in Tripoli. And so uh, it's a combination of this that has actually created a sense of uh, mistrust, a sense of a perception of unreliability by the West, even though at the same time, the West still remain, remains one of the, you know, the biggest ally of African countries, in part because of the colonial legacy and engagements have been going on for very many years. And, in, you know, the support in terms of aid, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in, in building democratic institutions or education and stuff like that, you know. But at the same time, I think African countries are finding it very, very difficult to count on the West as a dependable, reliable partner, despite some of the public statements that are made when you conduct a poll or you talk to policymakers, the opinion is actually much more different than what is shared out there in public for public diplomacy. Mm. How has the U.S. pressure campaign on African states to sort of uh, take its side, if you will, on this conflict? Uh, how has that played out? Uh, the U.S. pressure campaign has been strong. 
what it has managed is pretty much to mute the voices, perhaps either of neutrality or of support uh, of Russia's position uh, in the conflict, for instance. However, it has not managed to fundamentally change, especially the leading countries on the continent, how they view the conflict. And uh, there are only about six countries on the continent that actually, you know, uh, have the most influence. You know, of course, Kenya being one of them, despite its voting, uh, you know, Kenya was voting largely as a result of, in, you know, in keeping with international law uh, to ensure that big powers don't do that. But it was not actually a demonstration of support of Western position per se, especially in regard to the conflict in Ukraine. And so I think uh, sometimes the West confuses some of these uh, steps taken by African countries for explicit support. But by and large, the West has to do much more to persuade African countries that this is a different case. And so that, and that this, you know, apparent double standard is actually justified, which is going to be really, really a long, long uh, effort, you know, to be able to make. I think one thing that is going to be fundamental in terms of trying to change course is if Western capitals start demonstrating a degree of seriousness in terms of policy towards Africa, uh, the Biden administration has simply been missing in action. The French having having a very bad rap, especially in former Francophone countries, where they have a terrible, terrible record. The Britons are trying to you know, recover from Brexit, and therefore they've not been in a very strong place to try and persuade African countries to actually buy into some of the ideals that the West is trying to push today. And so the kind of relative chaos that is going on within the Western coalition itself uh, does not inspire a lot of African countries to actually want to jump on board. But also the recent history of contradictions and double standards militates against the ability of the West to persuade African countries to support a cause uh, that is actually just, but one that, of course, is also replete with a lot of contradictions. Now, I, I think one of the saddest parts about this for us as crisis group um, is that these tensions between the global north and global south, which have you know very deep roots, not just in the current crisis, but going back quite a long ways, um, ha- has also sort of affected, um, well, has, has hurt Ukraine. And of course, Ukraine's sort of stuck in the middle of this. Um, uh, President Zelensky, you know, has gone on a bit of a uh, world tour virtually, uh, uh, giving speeches and, and briefing of various institutions and bodies. He's he's tried to do that on the continent um, in Africa, you know, in Kenya, the African Union, but has found less audience. What is the thinking um, there not even listening to the Ukrainian uh, president's point of view when it comes to how African states are thinking about how to position themselves? African countries are responding to two things when it comes to Ukraine, especially the Ukrainian leadership. Number one, I think the Ukrainian leadership does not understand Africa and where it's coming from. Most African countries were appalled with the treatment of Africans in Ukraine itself, something which I think President Zelensky did not give much attention to. And that hurts Africans, especially as people who are colonized. Uh, secondly, their statements are coming, and a lot of African leadership has been paying attention from Ukraine, that makes Africans feel that it's insensitive to their own plight. For instance, during the, the reported massacre in Buka in in Ukraine of about 300 people, President Zelensky said this is the worst atrocity in the Second World War. And Africans were pointing to the 1 million people who died in Rwanda, 5 million who died in Eastern Congo, thousands, tens of thousands of those who've died in, in Tigray region, and those who are still dying. 
And so I think it may help the Ukrainian leadership to try and actually understand what informs Africa, uh, what informs some of the things, but also some of the sentimental attachment that uh, Africans have for Russia, which comes actually from the Soviet Union, not the Russian Federation per se, of the role that the Soviet Union, of which, of course, Ukraine was part in liberating African countries, in standing with freedom fighters on the continent, in uh, offering political support, and in building things that are actually still there. And leading African countries, when you look at the leadership, whether it's South Africa or Kenya or others, you know, the leadership actually is a number of leadership, our current leadership has roots, for instance, the Soviet Union or the former, or, uh, you know, Soviet bloc, you know, per se, during the Warsaw Pact. And so understanding this and perhaps trying to exploit the, you know, Ukraine's own role, which was, of course, part of the Soviet Union, may actually help perhaps be able to reach out to African leaderships uh, and, and African publics who right now, they are largely more sympathetic to Moscow as opposed to being actually pro-Moscow. They're more sympathetic because they think the Western world has ganged up against them just the way it always gangs up against the continent. So I just want to wrap things up by maybe looking ahead a bit more and taking a step back at the same time. Obviously, the world is changing. And um, even before this, African states were having to position themselves within a, a world of dwindling US influence, the rise of other powers, not just great powers, but, um, you know, in the Horn of Africa, powers from the Middle East, as well. Um, and, you know, a subtext of or, or, or explicitly part of this conversation we've been having um, is that the uh, multilateral institutions in some ways have had a hard time adapting to this. So if you could paint a picture to us about what a um, plausible world would look like that Africa can can seek to have, what sort of relations that would look like, you know, with the West, but also with China, if you could paint almost a, let's say, better case scenario about how this, how this plays out um, from the African perspective. From the African perspective, you know, first, if I were to start with Russia, Russia is a marginal player at best within the African continent. Of course, increasingly, it's, uh, you know, having some activities in Central African Republic, in Mali, uh, you know, probably it may you know, be having some basic rights in, in Sudan. And in part of actually is a more of a reaction of uh, perceived abandonment, of course, by the West. However, I think the best African can do uh, is as increasingly as Africa becomes the new theater for global geopolitics, of course, until the Ukrainian crisis, uh, there is increased interest both by the emerging powers, you know, such as Turkey and uh, Gulf countries, as well as, you know, advanced economies, and of course, China. Now, China and, uh, and uh, the West, of course, are the big players on the continent. And because of the presence that's already an acknowledged fact, uh, I think the best way will be Africa to take the good things that the West can provide, for instance, uh, they support in democratic institutions, uh, support in, you know, in healthcare, in education, in things that are actually progressive, uh, even as they, for instance, work with the Chinese when it comes to investment uh, in infrastructure and other areas, of course, which the continent also needs to be able to grow. But for Africa to take one side or the other, I think it's going to be detrimental to the continent because 
in so far, in as much as the continent needs economic growth, uh, you know, and development, it's also important that it also remains on the path towards democratization, uh, free media, civil liberties, and other aspects that actually build more durable, uh, strong economies. And so I think being somewhere in the middle and not taking explicit sides, it may benefit the continent in the long run, as opposed to trying to either offend one side or the other in a place where you're not guaranteed, you know, durability of that relationship in the long term by either party. Thank you, Dr. Kananjay, for, for coming on our, our podcast and, and for this, uh, you know, extremely rich and interesting discussion. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. If you want to find out more about our work or read our reports, head to crisisgroup.org. I'm Alan Boswell. Our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 